Hello, welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. Thank you for joining me. Um, I've been receiving all of your comments and feedback on social media, so thank you to all of you who've been chatting with me. Uh, for those of you that are just joining, you can get a hold of me via Twitter and Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I, or hit me up using the hashtag Head on History, which I regularly check. Um, I should also say, if you're enjoying this podcast, please don't hesitate to stop by iTunes and give us some feedback. That helps us a lot. It helps us rank higher in the algorithm so that new people can come onto the podcast and hear what we have to say. Um, and I always love reading what you what you have to say and write. I take all feedback uh, on board and take it into consideration as I develop these uh, episodes. And I, I spend quite a bit of time on, on each episode. They culled from my notes uh, from when I teach the class. Uh, I teach a history of Islam class, and so what I do is I take the notes from it, usually a topic I've covered over a course of several classes, and then I distill them into a a kind of digestible nougat, if you will, Um, and then I present it uh, to the podcast with a little bit of new information, something that's more related to the public, um, or trying to tie it into something, uh, some contemporary debates. So it takes quite a bit of of time to do it, So, but if you, you know, have thoughts or, or concerns if you want to share something, please do. I love taking your feedback on. So now that we've got that out of the way, let's talk about what we're going to discuss on this episode. We are going to talk about the history of Sunnism, uh, by which I mean Sunni Islam. Now, the majority of Muslims are Sunni, with roughly about 85 to 90. We don't have the clear number. Uh, 85 to about 90 percent. So it's the majority of of Muslims. Um, in indeed, Shia Islam uh, is a, and Sufi Islam and all these other kind of uh, forms of Islam also exist, and they are uh, just as important as Sunni Islam and have a very strong impact on the theology of the religion. And we're going to talk about the relationship between all these different kind of groups and how they intersect and how they blend. Um, and blend is a very important word here because. Um, we use kind of the term sect, and we'll, we'll talk about why that's a bit problematic. Now, even though Sunni Islam is, is kind of the majority, the kind of the main, so-called mainstream Islam, it's often treated as kind of normative or orthodox, um, and everything else, like uh, Sufism or Shiism, as kind of deriving from uh, Sunni Islam. That is not true. That's incorrect. Uh, neither... <clears throat> Neither is it true that Sunni Islam developed right after the death of Muhammad. Um, rather, like all other Muslim groups, Sunnism, like Shiism, Sufism, etc., took shape over several hundred years. This is also where I want to talk a little bit about the word sect. We often refer to Sunni Islam, Shia Islam, Sufism, Druze, Ibadi, etc., as sects of Islam. This is kind of a, this develops out of the study of religion in kind of Western universities, European universities, in which sect comes out of the understanding, of the kind of Christian understanding of religion. Protestant versus Catholic. Sect literally refers to kind of a, a division, a breaking apart of groups um, as, as and distinct identities that are often oppositional to one another. And in today's kind of contemporary climate, you, we can easily see how Sunni Islam and Shia Islam can be determined as or defined as sects, particularly with conflicts like the Iraq War, or the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Yemen. For those that are listening in from the future, uh, hundreds of years from now, I like to 
envision some poor kid is going to be listening to the sound of my velvety voice and will be wondering, what the hell is Yemen? Well, in 2017 and for several years before that, there has been an ongoing crisis in Yemen uh, with uh, a sort of proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But that's a really de derivative way of describing what is fundamentally a, an, an internal struggle and, and strife, a civil war of sorts with rebels like the Houthi rebels, government forces, while you have this superpower, uh, Saudi Arabia, exercising extreme military might um, and blockading the country, refusing to give it any access to food, water, or humanitarian aid. So it's a massive tragedy that's, you know, kind of not being talked about uh, a lot. But it is something that when you look at it, it's often described as a kind of Sunni versus Shia conflict, as, as a sectarian conflict. In many ways, this is a very lazy way of approaching this analysis, kind of international relations approach that doesn't take into consideration deep historical understandings of what how these two groups came to be. And indeed, Sunnism and Shiism aren't sects in the way that Protestantism and Catholicism are sects of one another. Because unlike Protestantism and Catholicism, Sunnism and Shiism have more in common than they have separate. They have the same acts of worship, they have the same Quran, they have the same God, they have the same messenger, Muhammad, and the importance of Muhammad is the same for both of them. Uh, this isn't necessarily the same with Protestant and Catholic. The Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible are different books. There are different chapters in them. Um, and different things are kind of emphasized, uh, whereas there are certain rituals that are part of, of Catholicism that don't exist in Protestantism. And Protestantism is seen as defining itself in protest, literally, it comes from the word, in protest to Catholicism. Sunni and Shiism aren't like that. Instead, they develop over several centuries centuries um, as a result of kind of historical experience. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So first and foremost, we need to understand what the original is. And the original kind of division starts right after the death of Muhammad. And the question is, who will rule or lead the community? Islam as a religion, and you can check out my first season to understand this better, Islam as a religion doesn't see itself as just a private faith. It sees itself as a private faith that builds a community. What is called the Ummah, or in kind of historical terms, a sort of super tribe that transcends divisions of blood and tribalism and, and gender and race and ethnicity. It kind of defies all of that to create a super tribe, a massive kind of tribe based off of, of personal belief, faith. Um, and so this community needs to have a leader, or at least someone that can guide it. What the role of that leader is, how that leader is elected or appointed, that is all up for debate, and that was never established. It's clear that no, from very early on that the leader was not to be a new prophet. The prophet uh, prophecy had ended, prophethood had ended with Muhammad, but instead was to be kind of a representative, a placeholder, or a or what eventually becomes called a vicergent, right? Someone who is a representative of Muhammad, not a representative of God. And that's very clear here. That the, the, this leader was not meant to be necessarily a direct connection to the divine. But there was debates on how this leader was to come about. And this is where we start to see the beginnings of a, of, of a shift. The first kind of group that we see here, and this was the majority, uh, believed that the leader should be elected uh, amongst equals, that it was a kind of democratic representative process. Um, and this group of people do don't have a name at this point in time, but they end up 
really emphasizing the desire to elect someone like Abu Bakr al-Sadiq, the companion of Muhammad. So there's this idea, you need to elect someone to be this representative. And this person would be both a spiritual leader in the sense that they would lead the prayers as well as a sort of political leader in that they would lead the community and deal with things like warfare, etc. Another group known as the Shiatul Ali believed that Ali needed to be elected. Now, they didn't argue at first that this was some theological reason. This is mainly just a division based off of who should lead. The Yashiatul Ali argue that Ali is the rightful leader. Eventually, the kind of collective Muslim authorities agree on the former position, that it is an elected body. And there's a lot of kind of infighting and strife and some weird machinations. Um, you know, there's this moment where like some of the groups, the Ansar in particular, try to have their own thing going on. And then that's kind of crashed by Omar and Abu Bakr. And then Abu Bakr manages to secure the position while Ali is still dealing with the kind of funerary rites of Muhammad. So there's a lot of kind of weird stuff going on, but that becomes the the, the majority decision. We're going to have Abu Bakr as the leader. The Shiatul Ali accept this. Contrary to kind of the way we view as like the Shiatul Ali go, oh, well, this is the break, we're the, this is the end, we're only accept Ali and everyone else is evil. That's not true. The, the early Shiatul Ali accept Abu Bakr. They accept Abu Bakr, and then Abu Bakr dies, and he appoints Omar. He doesn't even allow it to go into election. So now we have this other question. Sir. Okay, this time we didn't even have an election. The dude just appoints his own successor. So what happens now? Okay, again, you have a group, that original Shiatul Ali, go, this is kind of messed up. Ali should have been next. But once more, the majority kind of prevails, and Omar accepts it. And Omar is accepted. Omar, on his deathbed, <clears throat> and again, you can go back and listen to my episode on the Rashidun to know more about the kind of first four caliphs. On his deathbed, he selects a council, and he goes, out of this council, you must elect one of yourselves. And he dies. And out of this council, Uthman is elected. And this time, there's some serious tensions. The Shiatul Ali are like, look. We accepted Abu Bakr, we accepted Omar, but now we have to accept Uthman. Ali should have been elected. And you start to see a group within the Shiat al-Ali become a little bit more radical. This group says, no, the community has kind of lost its way. We need to be striving for God with a constant state of purity. We can't just accept various political we cannot just arbit we cannot accept arbitration mediation we cannot accept the middle ground and we sure as hell cannot accept compromise we need to fight we need to fight against impurity and injustice wherever we find it this is exacerbated by the fact that that uthman ends up being a bit of a nepotist uh, uthman does a lot of things that are different he doesn't ex he for one elevates the position of this kind of leader who starts to be called the khalif this vicegerent from the khalif al-rasul the khalif of the prophet of god to suddenly the khalif of god this is he the representative of god god's agent on earth he, there's all sorts of kind of stuff that uthman does that pisses off the more extreme wing of the Shiatul Ali, who start to become known as the Kharajites. The Kharajites reject this, and they end up in open rebellion. They actually lead an assassination plot and successfully kill Uthman, and eventually Ali is elected, he's appointed. But because he's appointed in these kind of really dire terms, there's division. 
a significant number of the original companions, the very people who followed Muhammad, are pissed at Ali. They don't reject Ali's claim. They reject the fact that Ali has not dealt justly with the injustice of Uthman's death. So that someone has to come in. The idea is that if you're going to be the Khalif, you need to be just. So you start to see this kind of uh, this this argument developing. Right? You have one group of people like, okay, if, if we are going to have a leader, that leader needs to be elected from the people. Okay, but the, he needs more than that. He needs to also uphold justice. Okay, and the other side going, if we're going to have a leader, it needs to be Ali because he has the closest relationship to Muhammad. So you have these kind of two positions developing. Right? Bear that in mind. That's very important for what we're talking about. But again, these aren't theological divisions. They are still not sects. They all see themselves as Muslims. They're not developed into any the theological movement in any way, shape, or form. Rather, this is just a, a, an, a kind of succession issue. You know, who's going to be the head of the, the, the group? So the, this majority ends up kind of fighting back a little bit against Ali. And some of them, again, a small group, end up in open rebellion against Ali. First you have the Battle of the Camel, and then you have what's known as the first fitna that's led by Muawiyah. Muawiyah is a, a descendant of Uthman. And this ends with arbitration. Ali agrees to arbitrate. He goes, okay, we are going to compromise here. Um, clearly, Uthman's killers need to be brought to justice. I certainly wasn't part of the assassination plot. My hands are clean. Ali lives a very pure and kind of good life. He's, you know, tries to emulate Muhammad to the best of his abilities. He works very hard at, uh, you know, uh, ensuring that all the money that is collected from the zakat is given back to the people. He he lives, you know, he tries to set a, a standard, a very strong standard for which people to follow. But the kind of political mechanism catch up with him and he agrees to this arbitration so that very same extreme wing of his party known as the Kharajites that rebelled against Uthman because there was this arbitration and compromise we refused to compromise now turn on Ali because they go look you failed you dared to compromise we cannot compromise and the Kharajites end up actually one of them ends up assassinating Ali for this compromise so what you're left with is this community, the, 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 the other extreme end, the people who kind of led a rebellion against Ali, who was the rightful Khalif, they end up taking power. The Muawiyah is named Khalif. And what Muawiyah does is he established a dynastic succession. So all the kind of early questions, should there be an election? Should we elect one amongst our peers? What are the kind of qualifications? He should have some type of relationship. He should be a companion. He should be just, etc. Are all kind of erased. And instead, you have a dynastic succession. He passes the caliphate onto his son, who passes it on to his nephew. And it's just one family. And this becomes known as the Umayyad Caliphate. And that's important. That's where we start to see the beginnings of Sunnism and Shiism. So it's not immediately after the death of Muhammad, but it's actually the beginnings of the Umayyads. So what happens is the Sunnis, or what's called Sunnism, Sunnism develops under the Umayyads. Now, another common mistake is that Sunnism is the acceptance of the Umayyad Caliphate. That's not true. Instead, what we see is that because there is this dynastic succession, suddenly the Caliphate goes from being a representative of, of Muhammad on earth to being this kind of kingly figure who's passing it on, the title on to his uh, children and who lives in a palace in Damascus and who has this kind of lavish court lifestyle. And Muslim 
Muslims are going, this is so far removed from what we originally imagined. The original debates produced some consensus that the Khalif was meant to be elected, the Khalif was meant to be uh, someone of good standing, of first among equals, and the Khalif was meant to uphold justice. That position starts to be the political, that kind of political justification ends up leading to dissatisfaction with the political circumstances of the Umayyads. So by saying, look, the politics doesn't match up what we originally kind of set out for. When we sided with the Rashidun, when we supported the Rashidun, this is what we kind of all came to think about. These were the, the kind of base points we all agreed on. Those are no longer being met. So how could we possibly live in a just society? And so what happens is you have these people start to turn away from politics. A quietist movement that goes, okay, we're not going to be interested in the caliphate directly. We're not going to rebel against the caliphate as the sort of extreme wings of both of these factions did, these both of these political parties did. And instead, what we're going to do is we're going to turn inwards and try to internalize Islam by following the lifestyle of Muhammad. In this way, the key kind of core value of, of this group that emerges under the Umayyads is uh, unity. This kind of language that I've talked about is the heart of Sunnism. These Muslims looked to the past for inspiration. They were dissatisfied with the caliphate. And they found it in figures like Abdullah who, ibn Umar, who is the son of Umar Khattab, the second uh, caliph. Apparently, according to kind of the, the stories that were collected by, by this time, now mind you, most of the, the, the companions had already died. Umar's son, Abdullah, was offered the caliphate three times, three separate times. They said, throw your hat into the ring so that you too can be a caliph. You too can, during the whole civil war between Ali and Muawiyah and all of that. And all three times, Abdullah rejected it. He said, I am not interested in being caliph. I must put jama'at first. Jama'at means the community, the, the unity of the community first. And jama'at refers literally to the people gathering together to pray as one body on a Friday. That is, the, that community, the physical community, the, the kind of integrity of the community, is first and foremost. This is the first stirrings of what we would do to call Sunnism. It becomes called Sunnism later on. It is a quietist movement. It is quietist because it is dissatisfied and disenfranchised by the Umayyads, and they look to the Prophet and his companions for inspiration. By quietist, what I mean fundamentally is that they reject sectarian division. They do not seek rebellion, and they don't want infighting. They don't want to fight against the Khalif. They're not interested. They're not saying we're going to change society by overthrowing the Khalif and putting on a, the rightful leader. Instead, they say we're going to change society from the inside. And we do so by putting the unity of the community, the local community, the jamat, the people that show up to your mosque, basically. We're going to put that community first. We're going to localize Islam rather than think about it as a big state. We're going to localize it, put the individual communities, the networks of people first, and we're going to do so, and we're going to preserve the spirit of Islam within these small communities through 
emulating those that came before us, our predecessors. Our predecessors are Muhammad and his companions. We are going to follow that tradition, and that tradition is called the Sunnah, the Sunnah of the Prophet, the actions and behaviors and traditions of the Prophet and his companions. The word Sunnah is where we get the word Sunni from. The Sunni there are those that follow the Sunnah of Muhammad. They put the unity of the community first, they reject sectarian divisions, and they think that the way to cultivate the spirit of Islam is through emulating Muhammad through the, the Sunnah. In other words, the Sunnah becomes the yardstick and the way by which to avoid any split. Follow Muhammad, pray as he did, follow and develop faith and keep the community first. But the question then becomes, well, what then is faith? Well, faith is is defined in one of these kind of sayings known as the Hadith that Muhammad experiences. Apparently, at one point, um, Abdul Qais appeared before Muhammad. He was one of the companions. And he complained that the Abd Qais, I'm sorry, the Abd Qais appeared. And there are a tribe of people that appeared before Muhammad. And they complained that their tribe was too far away from Medina. And that they didn't know how to really uh, develop Islam. Right, they didn't know how to practice their faith. Uh, what was called called deen, right? Deen. They didn't know how to practice their faith or religion. They didn't know what to do because they were so far away from Medina. And so that instead, so Muhammad basically said, "It's really easy to do. Here's what you need to do: profess that there is no god besides Allah, and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. Perform ritual prayer, pay the alms tax, and fast Ramadan." That's it. This become, begins with eventually becomes the five pillars of Islam, the uh, with Hajj or pilgrimage thrown in. But you could see, profess the faith, that is the declaration, pray the ritual fast, that is, uh, I mean, pray the ritual prayers, that's salat, uh, pray, uh, pay the alms tax, that's zakat. So you see how that's all developing, right? And do the fasting, that's saum, and then eventually hajj is added on. This kind of saying or hadith becomes super symbolic. The idea of, oh, we're distant from Medina, so how can we possibly cultivate that deen? Well, we were distant now temporally to the, from the perfect community of Muhammad. That Muhammad had developed this perfect community. Years had passed now, of several decades had passed now. The Umayyads were in charge. And now we were temporally distant from that perfect moment. The, how are we to cultivate proximity to Muhammad? How are we to cultivate proximity to uh, the the purity of the past, oh, well, we do it through emulation. And proximity is the key here. Both the Sunni and Shia are raising this question of how do you develop proximity or closeness to that perfect community, to Muhammad's core message, the spirit developed in Medina and then eventually developed in Mecca. How do you develop that spirit? How do you develop closeness to it? For the Sunni position, it becomes emulation. You emulate Muhammad through the Sunnah. All right, we're going to take a quick pause there just so we can get our let all this to digest. We're going to do a rapid fire round. All right, first question. If the Sunni are a majority, then why is Iran Shia? This is actually a fantastic question. Um, there's a long kind of history there that is developed. If you listen to the first season, you should get some of this history to see how they develop. Um, the Sunni develop as a majority quite early on. So even now, there's just Islam, but you're starting to see people develop theological positions for to explain their historical experience. The Sunni are explaining 
why they're kind of dissatisfied with the caliphate and how they can do what they can do about it. And we're going to next episode talk about how the Shia deal with it. But the Sunni end up becoming the majority quite early on. By the end of the Umayyads and the Abbasids, the majority of Muslims are are to adopt that Sunni position. Um, Shia Islam uh, remains a, a major group, but a but a, you know an important group. But they are a minority, and it isn't until the Safavids in about 1501 CE that you start to see Shiism uh, spread and expand. And that's mostly thanks to the Safavids. Ismail Shah focuses very hard on creating. Uh, legitimacy for his new uh, ruler, his new sultanate, his new kind of empire, um, and he sees Shiism as the big key to con- to doing that. And so he b- builds a kind of program of conversion, uh, brings over ayatollahs from Iraq, from Basra and Kufa, and um, b- develops this whole program of building emotional sentiment towards this new state that is the Safavid state. There's this, those drama plays that are put on. There's these whole stories. The kind of it's a very fascinating, almost like nation building going on in the 16th century that eventually converts the majority of the population to Shiism, and in turn gives him political legitimacy as the sort of uh, guy who is the leader of Shia Islam during the Safavid period, and also as oppositional to the Ottomans who were uh, Sunnis at the time, uh, and that carries on and, and that kind of structure even after the Safavids collapse, continue under the Qajars and then the Pahlavis and eventually under the modern. Uh, Islamic Republic uh, of Iran. But we'll talk about the history of Shiism more in depth next episode. But that's a fantastic question. And of course, my producer <laughs> decided that he's going to throw in his question. So I I apologize in advance for it. But he says, do Sunnis like their eggs Sunni side up or do they drink Sunni D? I par- pardon me for those terrible puns. Funny enough, I think that most Muslims, Sunni or Shia, eat eggs sunny side up because most of the cultures that I've been exposed to, Arab cultures, Persian cultures, Turkic cultures, usually have some type of egg dish that involves sunny side up eggs with onions and tomatoes or potatoes or some type of vegetables. Um, and they eat them sunny side up. I think I've only seen scrambled eggs as a, in a few places. It seems to be mostly a white thing that might have been adopted elsewhere. But someone else can correct me that, about the kind of food history of eggs. And as for Sun- Sunny D, we prefer uh, orange juice with the pulp. <laughs> the final question is why are Sunnis and Shias fighting constantly? This is actually a modern thing. Sunnis and Shias don't, aren't fighting all the time. And indeed, the vast majority of Sunnism and Shiism's history is that they work side by side alongside one another. And in fact, the differences between the two are very minor. And more often than not, there's figures in history that we point to that today we would go, oh, they're Sunni or oh, they're Shia, but during their lifetime, they would not have identified themselves that way because these identities were not as concrete. It really is post 16th century that we start to see the real tension, political tensions between these two groups with the rise of the Ottomans and the Safavids. The Ottomans adopt Sunnism as their literal political ideology and uh, Safavids adopt Shiism as their literal political ideology. And then there's a series of Ottoman-Safavid wars. I actually wrote an article about this for a textbook if anyone's interested. I'll send you the PDF of it. 
But they have a series of battles over a period of about 100 years, back and forth over territories. And they use Sunni and Shia claims to justify the war. Eventually, that kind of geopolitical machination is what produces the, the configuration of the modern Middle East with the three core countries, Egypt, Turkey, and Iran. Um, and Turkey and Iran and, and, you know, and Egypt continue the kind of Sunni-Shia tensions, which are then reinforced and exacerbated thanks to nationalist claims. Iran absorbs Shiism in its nationalist identity, while Sunnism is adopted in Saudi Arabia's nationalist ideology to the point where the two then become geopolitical rivals. And that geopolitical rivalry is then explained vis-a-vis religious reasons. So the religions in themselves, Sunni and Shiism, aren't actually in conflict with one another in any way, shape, or form. In fact, much of its history they may have disagreed on the authority they may have even been an early civil war but overwhelmingly centuries upon centuries of working well together in fact the very uh, greatest achievement of, of of muslim civilization the abbasid the so-called golden age is a result of collaboration between sunnis and shias it's really political differences that we see under two empires and then later geopolitical that are then reinterpreted vis-a-vis religion religion is used as a sort of justification when the real core split is geopolitical not theological um hopefully that was useful you know the quick rapid fire round fun questions to answer um and really kind of bring this history to life let's go back to um our our topic so we talked about how sunnism uh, develops as a focus on the sunnah of of muhammad on emulating muhammad to the best of their abilities and emulating the companions of muhammad by and therefore bringing islam into the jamaat putting the jamaat first bringing islam into these kind of local physical communities these communities would pray fast they would give zakat um, and they would profess muhammad as the prophet of god and their allah is god and by doing so they would be following the sunnah another major development it comes under the figure of abu hanifa abu hanifa uh, also known as imam abu hanifa lived during the 7th and 8th century from 699 to 767 and what he does is he becomes the first or he becomes the uh, first uh, islamic jurist he begins by writing down the uh, sayings of muhammad these are known as the hadiths he starts to write them down he writes down and collects uh, these sayings now these sayings were already being passed down orally most famously by uh, Muhammad's own wives. Uh, Aisha in particular and Hafsa are both major figures in the early movement of passing down Muhammad's sayings. Those sayings are then collected and reflected upon and they are the what build the sunnah, that body of tradition that the Sunni are trying to emulate. Abu Hanifa systematizes this. He compiles the, the sayings of Muhammad goes okay we can build an entire system out of this and this becomes the early attempts at sharia that is islamic guidance remember it's not islamic law it is islamic guidance what it becomes known as fiqh that is using uh, reason in legal rulings fiqh is legal rulings it's jurisprudence in other words and he argues he uses reason and rational interpretation to look at a certain saying so okay okay if muhammad recommended this then that means this if muhammad says that we shouldn't uh lust after uh women 
then that means that a Muslim men should lower their gaze in the presence of a woman so along those lines right so what he does is he creates these kind of this system this series of guidance based off of the hadith so for example the quran makes it very clear that drunkenness is not allowed right so the quran in the quran and under muhammad's guidance it says drunkenness is not okay but there's never a clear prohibition that says you know what no alcohol whatsoever. Instead, it argues that you're not allowed to be drunk and that everything from the grape is bad. Using legal reasoning, you get the formal declaration in Sharia that you shouldn't drink, that drinking is haram, right? That it is forbidden, that it's placed outside the bounds of religion. And so what develops is yet again this concept of unity. Religion and Islam is seen as a community with kind of gates or walls. Everything within is halal, and everything within is aimed at preserving that community. The gates and the uh, walls preserve the unity of the jama'at, of the community, of the people. Everything outside of the walls, that is haram, is about breaking the community apart. That involves infighting, sectarianism, actions that will tear apart family units, actions that will tear apart the community. This systematization is the beginnings of Sharia law, and it goes hand in hand with Sunnism, the attempt, the desire to emulate Muhammad and live according to Muhammad. Sharia then, as it's developed by Abu Hanifa, is the sort of guidelines, the guidebook, if you say, the, the user manual, of Islam, if you will, uh, for those of you that are tech nerds, right? It's the coding, if you will. Um, this is the user manual, if, if you will, for Sunnis on what to do in order to emulate Muhammad. And it's also the first attempts to really develop a scientific approach to the hadiths, that not all hadiths are accepted, that some sayings may be weak, that some sayings may be false. This systematization is not just about producing a legal, uh, a sort of legal tradition, a body of literature, but also about dealing with the sayings themselves, that is to produce a sort of historical method. The very first real scientific historical method is a result of this kind of development within Islam. That is an attempt to understand sources. So the hadiths are categorized into those that are considered accepted, those that are strong, those that are weak, and those that are false. That is that there isn't a clear connection to moment. So what they do is they look at isnad, which means witness or means a transmission, that those that can testify. Abu Hanifa and those that came after him who developed this system would look at a saying of Muhammad. Okay, what is this saying said? Who recorded this saying? Who heard this person say it? Because all the hadiths start the same. So-and-so heard so-and-so heard Muhammad say in that sense. So what they would do is they would trace the so-and-sos to see how many of them they could link up directly to Muhammad, therefore creating a clear link or clear line of transmission. If the line of transmission wasn't established, then it would fall into one of the other categories. It was a strong hadith, meaning that it fell within the principles of the Quran, but there was something a little not correct, but not 100% certain with the isnad. A weak hadith, meaning that the isnad is uncertain, and a false hadith, one that has been proven to have no connection to Muhammad whatsoever. And this is how this develops, this system. And it becomes part and parcel to Sunni uh, 
practice. But Sunni ideology and Shia ideology continue to develop over several centuries, and we're going to talk about this in the next few uh, episodes about how the theology develops further. Sunnism eventually partakes in this massive debate known as the Minya in in the late ninth and tenth century, in which Islam goes through a major theological debate. This question over what is the nature of God, what what is the nature of the Quran, and what is the relationship of Muslims to both of those. And we're going to see how Sunni Islam starts to develop um, an Ashari and how develop its theology between this Ashari and Mutazali debate. So we'll talk about the, the history of theology in another episode. Next episode, we're going to talk about Shiism and just the beginnings of Shiism, just like we talked about the beginnings of Sufism, I mean, Sunnism. We're going to talk about how it develops, how it develops as a, in reaction to kind of historical circumstances, how it starts as a sort of political position or a position on authority and the community, and then starts to develop its own ideas about practice and belief. For the Sunnis, it became about proximity uh, to Muhammad via emulation in order to preserve the unity of the community. It became a sort of response to the disenfranchisement of, of the caliphate. And we're going to see how a similar disenfranchisement with the caliphate shapes the Shiism, but in a different direction. See, And then we're going to see how these two intersect with one another, not as different sects, but as actually as groups of people that intersect and communicate and learn from one another and build and, and uh, develop as a result of their interaction. Hopefully this episode was useful to you. I wanted to keep this one shorter because we've had such long episodes in, in this kind of season. It's just really the beginnings of a series of kind of episodes, or the next three that are going to deal with this theological side of Islam. Shia Islam, and then we're going to talk about the deeper theology of Islam um, and how it has developed historically. So all I want you to do is think for now, Sunni Islam develops First as a position that says the community must have a certain type of leadership that is uh, election-based, that is a first among equals, that is about putting justice first. When there's a disenfranchisement that, with that, a failure to achieve that, it then says, okay, we must localize, we must preserve these local communities, the jamaat, the people that go to pray at the mosque on Fridays. These are all connected. How do we preserve the unity of them? Well, we're going to do so by internalizing Islam, by emulating Muhammad through the sunnah of Muhammad, and by doing so, we will avoid any splits and sectarianism. And that is the kind of thesis, if you will, of Sunni Islam. We're going to end it now. I'm actually going to give book recommendations at the end of the uh, third episode uh, of this kind of mini-series mini so that you have books on both Sunnism, Shiism, and theology. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, stay smart, my beautiful history nerds. Mm -hmm.